Lady District Attorney. You remember my cousin Martin? Freddie introduces us as though we are colleagues at a cocktail party. You met him that time you came by my mother's house in Dorchester? Martin, you're on probation, I say. You still have two years hanging over your head. You gonna lock us up, Martin says. She can't, Freddie says. She's not 5-0, she's a lawyer. I should report you both, but I'm not gonna let you screw up my murder case or my evening. Sorry about all this. Freddie takes my tote from Martin and hands it back to me. It was just like a misunderstanding, you know what I'm saying? Go home, I say. A detective will be by in an hour to check on you, be there. Sure, it's all good. Freddie and Martin shuffle toward the Park Street subway station. I brush myself off, apply a fresh coat of lipstick, and continue toward the Liberty Hotel, where my boyfriend, Ty, and a glass of Malbec await. Chapter Two The Liberty Hotel, nay, the Charles Street Jail, is a massive granite structure built in 1851. Thousands of pretrial detainees, including Malcolm X and the Boston Strangler, have done time here. Now, it's a luxury destination for tourists and business travelers, willing to pay upwards of $400 a night to sleep in refurbished jail cells. Real police mugshots of celebrities hang in the lounges, clink, alibi, the yard. The place makes me feel right at home. About a hundred well-heeled women and besuited men are lined up outside the hotel. I sneak to the front of the queue, prepared to badge my way inside, until I see Jimmy Vickers, stocky and balding, stationed at the front door. Jimmy and I met a couple of years ago when he was impaneled on one of my grand juries. Miss Endicott, long time no see. He clocks my knees. You're all cut up. It's nothing. I stretch the fabric of my skirt to cover the scrapes. I'm clumsy. Someone came in here a while ago, asked me to keep an eye out for you. A black guy, about six foot two. That's my boyfriend, Ty. He's playing a gig. He said he'd be upstairs in the catwalk. Jimmy unhitches the red velvet rope from the metal stanchion and steps aside. I go into the hotel. A steep escalator leads to an expansive atrium, underneath a 90-foot-high rotunda where a frenetic pickup scene is in progress. A 30-something, in a navy blue blazer and gray flannel slacks, blocks my path. Buy your drink, he says. Hey, wait, aren't you that... I cut him off before it becomes impossible to deny. No, I look like her, but I'm not. He starts to challenge me, but gets distracted when a willowy brunette in a slinky silver bridesmaid dress glides by. I take the opportunity to disappear in the crowd. Upstairs, Ty is seated at a table, drinking an anchor steam. He's wearing a black leather jacket and white button-down shirt. No matter the venue, Ty is always the most handsome man in the room. He sees me walking toward him and stands. Babe, what happened? He says. I fell, I say. It's nothing. I don't even try to sell the lie, and kindly, Ty pretends to buy it. He wraps his arms around me and gives me a kiss. I relax for a moment, 
feel safe in his embrace. There's a glass of red wine on the table. I take a sip, then quickly put the glass down. We can't afford decent wine anymore, I say. This tastes like something I'd pick up at the Clinique counter. Sorry, babe, he says. The reds you like go for over 20 bucks a glass. We have $20. Not for a glass of wine. Cash never used to be a problem. My family has plenty of money, too much money, and they've always been more than generous. Until last year, when my life was threatened and Ty was almost killed. They issued an ultimatum. Quit my job or forfeit my wealth. My parents never approved of my career choice. My mother called it unbefitting, and my father deemed it unsafe. The incident was the final straw. It was an easy decision. I love what I do.